The teaching text this morning is from John 6, 60 through 69. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, congratulations to you as well. First, it's what, second Sunday of summer? Fourth of July weekend, here you are. I'm not sure the exact matrix of rewards in heaven. I think it's on the app, but you're way up there. Way up there. So we did it. We did it together. We made it to ordinary time. Did you guys feel the shift last week? <laughs> I'm killing this morning, guys. Just, it's only uphill from here. Uh, we ended, our, we ended our Pentecost series last week, so that means we're in ordinary time now. You should have felt the shift, just loosened up. You can do, kind of read whatever we want now. Uh, we're not, you know, tied to the lectionary so much. So, is this thing on? Um, we're beginning a new, a new series uh, to start Ordinary Time. Our summer, our summer series is going to be called Words of Life. And our hope is to move through selected passages of the teachings of Jesus and just spend the next two months meditating on the words of Christ, uh, the teachings of Jesus. At times they're comforting, at times they're really challenging. Um, but uh, the, the, the self-proclaimed claim of these, uh, of these teachings of Jesus is that they are actually words of life. And so my hope and prayer is that... Um, these won't be words of life in a general sense, like disconnected spiritual platitudes that we, you know, mentally assent or disagree with, but that they will actually shape and define the actual reality of our church, the actual inner workings of our, of our life, that they will you know, come to bear with authority on, on who we really are. Help us understand our place in the story uh, that, we're, that we're in, Brooklyn in 2017, and how, how, we, live, how we live in it. Um, one of the uh, side benefits of, of being a minister is that uh, people in, that, in your regular sort of outside world of church, uh, when they have a question about religious stuff, they, they come to me and, and ask. And uh, I had a conversation with uh, a Catholic friend uh, this, this weekend as we were watching our sons play, play baseball. And this is a guy who's really well-educated, incredibly successful in his career. And he was talking about this moment where he was sitting in mass and he got very confused. Confused, and he wanted to chat with like someone outside of, of his tradition and ask them about this one section of the Bible. And so basically, word for word, he said, okay, so I was in Mass, 
and they were reading from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and I was all for it. He said, I love the Beatitudes. They are Jesus at his best. Uh, he's ranked Jesus stuff, and he's like, this is Jesus' best. Um, but then he's like, just a little bit later, it gets so intense, and he's like, like, it feels like a change in tone. He's like, all of a sudden, Jesus is like, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are, you know, blessed are, are, the, are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth. And all of a sudden, Jesus is like, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's the same as adultery. And my friend, like, sort of, you know, like, you have that, like, instinct to let your voice go down a little bit. He's like, do people still believe that, really? I, like, that sounds so old school to me. And uh, he's like... He's like, did someone come later and add this in? Like his instinct was to jump to a, a Tom Hanks sort of Dan Brown conspiracy that people had come in and added stuff later and that this was the, the wrong tone. And we, we ended up having a good, though short, uh, conversation about it. It's just like tough to maintain that, that, uh, that thread on the third baseline. But um, I would say the guy, he wasn't tr- trying to justify lusts or, 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 or anything. He was just saying Jesus' teachings on our sexual ethic seem really challenging and kind of old-fashioned to his modern, uh, you know, pluralistic sensibilities. And, um, and they, did, they seemed different from what he really liked in the Beatitudes. And um, there was an aspect of the conversation that was amusing to me, but, I, but like many of you, I could relate. I could relate. Like there are things that Jesus says that are immediately comforting, that are easy to access, that seem like heartwarming and like I could put this on the inside of a Hallmark card and give it to my mom at Mother's Day and this but then there are other aspects of what Jesus says that just like hit you in the face Uh, they're incredibly challenging and the pain points is not when the like the general principle like oh yeah some of the things Jesus says are challenging The, the pain points come when there's a specific place of tension that makes you directly uncomfortable and you have to say what do I what do I do with that? How do I, how do I, like basically like part of the question of this Words of Life series is how do we really follow Jesus? How do we actually take what he says and let it shape, and take, take who he is and, and let it actually shape our very lives, the I- intricate details of our decision-making frameworks and how we actually live, especially when we come to those places of confrontation where Jesus' words seem really difficult to accept. There's a matter that's been sort of discussed in Christianity for, for centuries. And, and, and many times in the last hundred years, this, this debate has come up and been argued and written about and discussed in, in different circles of Christianity. But basically the, the question is this, is can you have Jesus as your savior, like the one who rescues you and forgives you, if you're not willing to accept Jesus as a, as a Lord, as an authority or a king in your life? Can you kind of have like, in, in, in maybe easier terms, can you have divine assistance, uh, you know, for the things of your life, but without having to sec- accept the authority of a divine guide in Jesus? Savior and Lord, does he, does he have to be both? And probably the basics of that tension seem really obvious to you, but I want Jesus to be the one who forgives me and who heals me and who cleanses me and who redeems me, who makes me right with God and whatever stamps my passport for the good place instead of the bad place one day when when my time on earth is up. But do I have to accept him as an authority in my life? Willing to submit to the full scope of the leadership of Christ and say, you're my God, my King. I want you to lead me. I want you to actually give me your words to be words of life. So I just want to acknowledge that's there. Many of you already know that. And without unpacking the debate too much, I just want to highlight one, one aspect of it. If we're, if we're in relationship with Christ, if we've come to believe that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, then 
We're saying this, this, this person who's, who's like some of the words we really like and some are really challenging, this person is actually God, Yahweh in, in the flesh, the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form. And so we don't really get the liberty of saying this part of Jesus I like, this part I, I want to leave behind. If we're trusting him to be a forgiving savior, we, we, have, we believe he has the actual authority to say over our sins and brokenness, you're healed, you're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're mine. I love you, I bring you in. And we want him to have the authority to say that. But if we give him the authority to say that, he also has the authority to challenge us, to put his finger on that one place of our life where we're really resistant. And we can't turn around and say, listen, I appreciate all the mercy, but I see things a little bit more comprehensively than you do, Jesus. I've sort of been around, you know, and I'm like really educated, and this is Brooklyn 2017, and we've got a pluralistic understanding society, and I understand just how things work, so thank you for the mercy and forgiveness and for the ticket to heaven, but I'll take it from here. So, not a big reveal that I think we actually have to have him as Savior and Lord, and if we allow ourselves to receive him in the fullness of that, that we'll see those two are really beautifully linked, that actually... The more he is Lord, the more we experience the the magnitude of his mercy as Savior. And the more we're trying to actually let him shape our lives, the more we need his mercy on a day-to-day basis. Many great thinkers and Christian writers have have addressed this. C.S. Lewis, maybe most famously, has has pointed out um, this disconnect between the reality that many people are actually okay and really fine with Jesus as a great teacher as long as there's certain things that they can place over here in another category and kind of dismiss, like his claim to be God. Uh, And it's maybe the most quoted thing Lewis has has, has ever said, is he pointed out this logical flaw that if he was a teacher and he said the things that he said, if he was a great teacher and he said the things that he said and he claimed to be God and he wasn't, that he was actually insane and therefore not a great teacher. I had the uh, incredible chance uh, to see you two this week, um, the Troutmans who just left for Vietnam invited Allison and I to go with them, and, and they, had seen, uh, they had seen you two like 45,000 times, um, and it was, it was my first experience. I tried to go, I tried to go as a kid uh, to see you, you two, but I was, uh, my musical taste was so different. I went to see them, op- I went to see Rage Against the Machine open for you two, and then I left before you two started, <laughs> just so you know how hard I rocked in ninth grade. Um, get a couple of these from the back. Um, I was, yeah, you know, I was like, as a, as a, you know, like, sort of privileged suburban white kid, I was really fighting the power. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Bono has said, uh, honestly, I was so shocked. I wasn't expecting this. I like you two. They're fine. But I was in tears the first four songs. There was something just like so powerful about this mass of people in this group that has tried to stay connected to, I think, the power of the Spirit of God for, for this many years. And it was just like such a moving experience. But um, I was thinking this week about that thing that Lewis said and how Bono kind of took that and restated it uh, in, in a way that, that many, more, many people heard maybe that wouldn't have ever read C.S. Lewis. And so I'll, get, I'll give you the Bono version of, of this idea that, that Lewis uh, you know, first, first said. He says this, look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say along the lines of of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. 
And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric, and we had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M word, because you know we're going to crucify you. And he he goes on, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but actually I'm the Messiah. At this point, everyone is staring at their shoes, and he says, and and saying, oh my God, he's going to go on and keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, he was the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. What Bono and Lewis are trying to rescue us from is is this arrogant, and even if it's unintentionally arrogant, claim that we can pick and choose from a place of comprehensive knowledge the, the parts of what Jesus says that we want. And the litmus test for what gets in and what is put out is what we're comfortable with. And Jesus is going to challenge us. The passages of his teaching that we're going to look at this summer, they're going to challenge us. And of course they should. If God in the flesh, Yahweh, came as a person, the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form and was speaking to what makes for life, what makes for abundant life, what makes for healing, what makes for the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, and we think that we should agree right offhand with every bit of it, we have a a huge misconception about the reality of God, the kingdom of God, and the nature of our own brokenness and need. So he was either nuts... (laughs) Or he was God, and we need to start taking his words as the words of life. And this is the precise challenge that's going on in John chapter 6, especially at the end. And that's why we're starting this entire series with this, you know, pretty intense interaction. Because here's the question I want to keep putting forward to. As much as you like sort of like to hear the Lewis quoted or the Bono quoted, and you're like, oh, that's a a good general principle. My question to you this whole summer is going to be, how do we really follow Jesus? Do we know his words? Do we live by his words? Are they integrated into our life? The the word disciple in in the first century, it, it meant to live in the dust of the rabbi. It means that you're following Christ wherever he goes. You're listening to his words. You know his teaching on on these different matters. But more than that, you've seen him eat. You've seen him drink. You've seen him sleep. You've seen him at, at parties. You've seen him alone. You're, live, you're, you're trying to make the way of Jesus your actual way of life. So what do we do when we come across something from Jesus that we do not agree with, something that scandalizes us, something that we dislike? Do we just turn the volume down? I think if you put yourself in this story in John 6, you'll have many moments that that have happened like this for you. On On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And then it gets worse a, l- a little bit later. It says that uh, from this time forward, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I'm not into numerology, but I do think it's weird that that's John six sixty six. Anybody else like the verse six 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 six? Is people leaving Jesus? Who did this? Great editing. As as weird as that is, there's so much pain and disappointment in these lives. Think about these people have been following Jesus. They've seen miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've been intrigued. They've been drawn in. Like many of us, they've had encounters with Christ and they want to know more. And yet they get to this point where they say, ah, that's too far. And they turn and they go away. There's pain. There's pain in their disappointment. Oh, this isn't what I thought it was. I'm not in anymore. And they go their own direction. But there's pain in Jesus too. He turns, he turns, listen, he, says, he turns to his closest friends 
And he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And for all the times that Peter puts his foot in his mouth or blows it in a crucial moment, this is one of the times where he gets it right. And we have this beautiful, bold, loving confession from Peter. He says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. That's what I want to be the theme, the anthem of this series. <laughs> to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. This is an imperfect man. We have enough of his biography to know this is an imperfect and at times very broken man. And he's pouring out a confession in a moment of pain, in a moment of tension. And he's saying, Jesus, where else are we going to go? We, we believe you're who you say you are. And I think to fully grasp the emotional weight and, and the challenge for our own hearts that's, that's present in, in Peter's confession, we do need to quickly go back and ask how we got to this place where people are bailing, uh, where, people, where Peter comes to this place where he feels like he has to, he has to say that. And so what I want to do, John, John chapter 6 is 71 verses, and we're not going to hit them all, but I do want to summarize the chapter in five quick scenes for you. So you, many of these scenes will be familiar. We're going we're gonna to move quickly, but scene one... At the beginning of John chapter 6 is the, feed, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, that's probably what it's labeled in the you know, bold heading in, in your Bible. We know that it was more than, than 5,000, that they were just counting the heads of the families. At this point, we're talking more like 25 or 30,000 people probably. But Jesus had been teaching all day in a remote place, and there was no easy access to food for the crowd. The disciples realized at some point in the afternoon that they're about to have a bunch of hangry people on their hands. And they say, what, what, what are we going to do? And they implore Jesus, all right, like, hey, could you wrap it up, maybe three more points, and then we got to let people go find food, because we're, we're a long way from any bodegas, and, and Jesus instructs the disciples to feed the people. And they sort of, you can sort of like, just see that like, head turn moment from the disciples, like, we don't have anything to feed them. And the, the amount of money and food that it will require is enormous. So finally, Jesus says, all right, what can you come up with? And we know the, the famous, right? There's the five loaves and, uh, and, and fish. Do you remember when Christians were trying to appropriate like uh, secular logos and make them into Christian t-shirts? Like instead of Sprite, you had the spirit. Wasn't that like a highlight for Christendom? Wasn't that like one of the best moments for all of us when it said Reese's and it said, it said Jesus? Man, those were great days. That's the way you really know. Jesus like, They'll know you're my disciples by how you can rearrange that logo. But my favorite one was Abercrombie and Fitch, a breadcrumb and fish. And that's partially because how far away from an Abercrombie you could smell it before you got to it. Just the sensory witness. Okay. Um, Sorry, that was a side note. Jesus asked what they can come up with, and they come up with five loaves and two fish. And Jesus blesses it, and then they have this abundant provision. Jesus does a miracle, but he doesn't just feed everyone what they need. There's 12 baskets of abundant provision that, that, that they collect. Jesus, like Moses, and this is very important, Jesus, like Moses, is giving bread in the wilderness. And there are 12 baskets to take up. And there wasn't 10 and there wasn't 7. There was 12. Why? Because it's one basket for every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. God is still saying, I am Yahweh. You should recognize this. I'm the one who provides for you in the desert places. And by the end, they're calling Jesus a prophet and they're trying to make him king and that's a huge temptation. That's the huge temptation of, of scene one. It's also the huge temptation of our lives. Hey, this Jesus can, can be a benefit to my life. 
Now I want to take what Jesus can do, his power, his strength, and, and, and I want to sort of fit it into my narrative, into my story. And Jesus can be my life coach and help me along to, to, my, to my goals. You're a great provider. You're a savior. You're a rescuer. I'm going to attempt to take you and then use you for my plan. But Jesus slips out of their grasp, scene one. Scene two, Jesus crosses the water, which is like a pretty understated title for what actually happens. But in this next scene, Jesus has told his disciples to, to go on without him, and they've done so. And they're working hard against the waves. They're, they're rowing at night, and they're trying to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. They had rowed for three or four miles against heavy winds and rough seas. That actual detail jumped out at me, because on Father's Day, uh, I was at, at our parish uh, retreat, and I decided to have a quaint moment. I was like, I'm going to take my daughter canoeing. She's like five and not really uh, like up for paddling. So I was doing all the paddling on my own. And I was just like, I basically just want to get out to the middle and take a photo for Instagram and then get back, you know. Um, just kidding. I wanted to bond with my daughter. Relax, people. Um, so we're, we're out there, and I just realized I'd gone like 200 yards. And we're like, there's a little island out there where, we, where she wants to go pick wildflowers, and we get out there, and we're picking them. All of a sudden, one of the YMCA workers warns us that this island is patrolled by geese who may attack you if you take one of their flowers. And so I'm like, oh, like, let's get out of here. So I'm rowing fast. I probably rowed 250 total yards, and I was sore the next day, aching in my shoulders and just realizing like, hey, my days of fitness are over. Um, Sorry, that was sadder than I wanted it to be. Um, they're rowing for, for, for three or four miles. They're, 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 they're fighting the rough winds and, and, and the high seas. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking out to them. And then he, and the, phrase he repeats, the phrase he says to them is one of the most often repeated phrases in the New Testament. Jesus is walking to them on the water. And he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus keeps saying that. Angels, when they show up, they keep saying, the message from heaven is, hey, don't be afraid. When God shows up, don't, don't be afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm here. And they receive Jesus into the boat. And as soon as they do, they're miraculously transported to the other side. So Jesus is like, I need you guys tomorrow. Your shoulders are already sore. Let's get on over there. And they're miraculously transported across the water. Now, think about these two, these two stories, scene one and scene two. If you're, if you're a Jewish witness to these events, here's a man feeding people in the wilderness with bread from heaven, and here's a man performing and leading an impossible water crossing. Does that ring any bells? Right, of course, Red Sea, and being trapped and nowhere to go as the armies of Egypt are bearing down and God provides a way through the water. They're in the wilderness. They have nothing, uh, they, they have no way to, to, to find nourishment and God provides manna from heaven. The people are not missing it either. They're beginning to see and they want confirmation. It brings us to scene three where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Many who've been following him are now coming to a crucial place of deciding. Will we just accept this, someone, this person as someone who's bringing some nice benefits into our world, into our region, into our story? Are we willing to accept him as Messiah? Are we willing to say he is God? He's asking them to trust him and it's not easy. Not just to see what they can get out of him, but to fully trust him. And, and, and just listen to the interaction. Then they asked him, okay, Let's get down to business. What must we do to do the work God requires? Pause there for a second. That's such a human question. 
all right, tell me literally the bare minimum that I have to do to be in. That's what I want to know. I've got a very busy life, a lot of things. I got some irons in the fire. What do I have to do to do the work God requires? And listen to the simplicity of Jesus' answers. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. And so they ask, okay, ah, that sounds great, but we need a few more confirmations. What sign will you give them that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they're like, okay, we're in. Sir, they said, give us this bread. Always give us this bread. And then it gets challenging. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that that I shall lose none of all those he has given me but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. There's earthly bread that we need, that's a real life need. The disciples were right to say, we gotta get these people food and Jesus provides. But he's, he's not content just to, to stop at our physical needs. He's saying, I, I, I've, I've been sent to, to, to be the bread of your life, to be the little nourishment of your soul, to be your rescuer, to be the one who, who provides the thing that you need at the, at the very deepest level. There's something more important than bread that spoils. There's heavenly bread for your body and your soul and Jesus, not as a separate religious idea, is saying, I am that. I am the bread of life. What you need most is intimate connection and relationship with this Jesus. If you pluck that sort of I'm the bread of life thing out of, out of context, it's nice. It's like, yeah, oh, Jesus, you're nourishing. You're warm. You're carbs. <laughs> this is great. But this was a scandal to many who were standing there listening to Jesus. He's saying, it's, it's Yahweh that you learned to trust, that, that, that you assigned the, the provision to Moses, but it was actually Yahweh. That Yahweh is in your midst now saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one to, to, to provide what you, what you need. I'm the one to be your savior, your rescuer, your Messiah. And this brings us to scene four, which is debate and departure. They've begun to drift into ter- territory that many who've been following him cannot bear. They, they've, they've, they've come to the place where they want to tell Jesus enough is enough. And that's true of, of many of our lives. We have places, we have territories of our life where we say, Jesus, you can come this far and no further. I'm fine if you want to speak to my finances, but not to my sex life. Or I'm fine if you talk to me about my sex life, but stay away from my wallet. I'm, I'm fine if you, if, if you want to, you, you know, Help me be more disciplined in my prayer life, but I, I, I don't want to hear anything that, that, that you have to say about what I'm supposed to do with my career. So listen, Jesus goes on. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live for, forever. This bread is my flesh. Man, you just hear them wishing he hadn't said that, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise them at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my, my, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus' PR manager is screaming and pulling out his hair. What are you doing? You had them. You were the bread of life. Now you're like spiritual cannibalism. Let's begin. What? You have to eat my, my flesh and drink my blood to, to have a share, to have a part of me. It's one thing to do a miracle and, and give people who are hungry bread. Now you're claiming to be spiritual bread that can nourish and give life. But now you're saying the way we have to take of that bread is to eat your flesh and drink your blood. And for the Jewish men and women who are hearing this, they have very clear laws about, I can't even eat an animal with blood. Like there's no way that we can do what you're asking. You sort of see the incredulity of Nicodemus when Jesus says, you gotta be born again. He's like, how am I gonna go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Give me some practical advice. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. They have no category for that. And so they end their time with Jesus at this point. And this is what's heartbreaking about it because we don't need to make it easier than it is. It's not like they should have just been able to be like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. We're still on board, Jesus. No, what he's saying is remarkably challenging. It needs further explanation. They have real questions that need real answers and they're, they're, they're natural, normal questions. They're questions you and I would have. But instead of pursuing the relationship to get the answers, they take their questions and go. They say, we've seen some, some good things from you, but here you can go and no further and you've crossed the line and where you go with your questions matter. Where they go with their questions is away from Jesus. The only people who actually see this play out to the point where what Christ is saying prophetically actually makes sense and has a really accessible place where it can be lived out are those who stick around. So I want to challenge you when you come to a place in the words of Jesus teaching this summer and you're confronted by it. You're going to have a choice between your education and your sensibilities and what you know of the world and, what your, and your willpower or what Jesus is saying. And if you take your questions and take your ball and go home, you might not get to see where the thing plays out. That's what happens. That's just so sad. John 6, 66 is that they left. And they're not walking. They, they disconnect the relationship and they process their questions in another place. And so they don't get to see how it, how it works out. What Jesus is talking about when he says, listen, this bread is my body. It's going to be broken. This blood is going to be poured out. And that's how you're going to have a share in the bread of life is I'm going to literally fill you with my life. I'm going to, I'm going to make a way that my spirit can enter your life. Just in the next chapter, he, gets, he actually gets into the answer of what he's talking about. In John 7, he stands up on the last and greatest day of the feast and he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and I will fill you with living water that will come in you like a spring. And Jesus is giving us these fragments of metaphor and poetry that our minds struggle to comprehend because he's saying the, the magnitude of the spiritual reality I'm talking about, it's, 
You're not going to get it if I, if I just give it to you in, in one direct sentence. You're literally not able to comprehend. I have to give it to you in bits and fragments and poetry and parable. But if you will stick with me, if you will hang on to the relationships, you will eventually see the fullness of the abundant life I've come and that I've promised to you. So the, the, the heartbreaking moment is when they take their questions and they say, nah, we see things a little bit more comprehensively than you do. We're going our own way. And they come to the final scene, the heartbreaking moment, in which there are two confessions. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What's he saying there for just a second? (laughs) Say, hey, is this challenging? What if you saw me sitting on the throne of heaven? Would you be a little more willing to accept what I'm saying? What if you saw the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What if I wasn't just walking around in these rags and dirty Birkenstocks and, and, and you hadn't just been living with me for the last year? What if you saw me in my, in my place of true status? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. And yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. With agony, Jesus says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Two confessions, Jesus' confession and Peter's confession, super quick. Jesus' confession is this. These words are challenging. They're gonna confront you. They're, they're, they're gonna open up a picture of the world and the kingdom of God that you haven't, you haven't been able to comprehend yet. They're going to push your understanding of the world. They're gonna challenge you in the real places of your decision-making and willpower, but they're coming from a place of authority. I, I, Jesus is too abrupt for our modern sensibilities sometimes. He's like, it feels like he's being rude, but he's speaking to people like a father with authority who knows the fullness of, of their life. There's sometimes where you speak to your kids and you're like, I can't give you the full picture of why you can't eat candy every day all the time. But eventually it's going to break down your body. And right, that's a simple, small argument for saying like, as, as, as a parent, you're caring for the needs of your, of your children in a comprehensive way. And all they care about right now is, can I watch a show? And you have to help them see a bigger picture, but maybe in the moment they're not going to be like, no, Dad, I do see you're thinking about my long-term education and my attention span and me getting into college. Jesus says these words are challenging, but they come from a place of authority. They're giving you perspective from God on, on, on life. What would it do to your offense level if you knew they came from the throne of heaven? There are things that you're just going to have to be willing to receive before you understand, to obey before you have the full picture. That's what faith and trust is. You're going to have to leave a place of arrogant demanding and enter a place of humble trust. And the next thing he says is these words are full of spirit and life. The actual life of God is contained in these words. And they bring us to a place of abundant life. That you're, you need to be a different type of person, different types of categories, different types of calculations, utterly renovated and made new by the Holy Spirit. This is the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. The, the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and give it to you to the full. 
Of course, the disciples would, would eventually click for them. Oh, this was a, a preview of the Eucharist. He was going to say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is a preview of the Eucharist. But those who leave in this moment, they don't make the connection. It's those who keep walking with Jesus who see the, the pieces fit together. That's Jesus' confession. These words are challenging. They're from a place of authority. These words have the spirit and they have life. And then Peter's confession. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Honestly, Jesus, whatever substitute we would choose instead of you, our pride, our reasoning, mere religious activity, our own appetites, our, our, what our will is comfortable with, the trajectory and narrative we're trying to tell, whatever we would, we would choose instead of you in this moment, it wouldn't have life in the way you're offering it us. Nothing else will do. You have the words of eternal life. You are able to heal and forgive and cleanse and give life. You are Savior. But you are also Lord. You are the Holy One of God. The word holy is an interesting word. We sing about it in celebration and worship songs and it's the thing that separates us from God. You're holy. You're way different than us. You're separate. You're nothing like us. And we celebrate that. Why? Only, it's only good news to worship Jesus, uh, worship God as being holy because that means separate and distant and distinct from us if he is able then to come and make us holy. To make us like him. And that's what the gospel is doing. Jesus is substituting himself for our brokenness and sin and death and offering us his quality and type of life. The abundant life of his spirit. You are, are our savior, but you're also worthy to be trusted as the holy one. Worthy to be followed as God. Worthy to be the authority in our lives. So my question for us this summer as we look at Jesus' words of life is, is he our savior and our Lord? I think we cannot have one without the other. Super simple ending place. And I think the Spirit may have been speaking to many of you in different specific places. I want to give room for you to respond to that in just literally a, a moment. But we came back from our parish retreat where we just spent time in prayer, uh, where we talked about prayer. And we said, we want this to be a summer of deepening relationship. Very simply. That's the theme of our summer. Wow. We had a, a whole team get together and come up with that. Just building friendship with God. Take it, what if you took every day this summer and you prayed the Lord's Prayer? Or you prayed the Psalms and you just spent time cultivating a relationship with God? It, it would be incredible. We're, we're, we're asking for us as a church to make this a summer of prayer. And during our time on Sundays, the way I want to reinforce that in, in our life is, is to give this deepening friendship with God, some real context, and to give you the words of life of Jesus, saying, listen, if you will shape your life around these realities, you will, be, you will be participating in the kingdom of God. It's not like you obey these things to get in, the, to get in good standing with God. That's works-based righteousness. Obviously not. Jesus has done it all. He is, it is finished. He has brought us in his family, and now we live in the abundant life he's promised. And, and, the, and the words of Jesus are... are, are an access point to know how to practically frame our lives around that. So if you're looking for how one way you could respond, you can make a commitment in your heart that this summer would be a summer of prayer in your life and that you will come intending to be confronted by the words of Jesus so that you can sh it can shape the practical details of how you orient yourself in the world. To live by them, to be nourished by them, to be corrected by them when necessary, to be healed and to receive life from them. Let me pray for you.
Heavenly Father, there is a level of satisfaction and maybe even smugness in our hearts when we sit over your words and we say, this I'll receive and this I won't. But the problem is it leaves us disconnected from your actual real life, from friendship, from relationship. And we're just dealing with what you said as ideas. I pray in the name of Jesus you would break us free from that. And that we would enter into the spirit and the life of your words. They would shape our hearts. They would, they would do the work that only they can do. They would confront us in the secret places. The places that, that run in our inner monologue that no one else knows about. I, just, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of Jesus and you would use them to bring conviction, to bring revelation, to bring insight, to bring healing, to bring correction, God, to... to to draw us out and to experience your love, that you are the bread of life. You want to satisfy us and and make us full, make us whole. I pray in the name of Jesus that we would receive that. That you would show each of us by the power of your Holy Spirit how we are meant to respond in these moments. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.